Sophia, your vodka cranberries here. Yay! Welcome to Therapy Sundays. My name is Sophia. And I'm Dash. And this is Therapy... I don't know why I say that every time. Okay, you this do. is Therapy Sundays. And this episode is a very special one. So, we got... Uh, we decided to collect some feedback after our very long five episodes mm-hmm. that we filmed a so far. Five seasons. <laughs> yeah, five seasons, one may, one may say. And we decided to get some feedback and see what, what do you guys like listening to. And... A lot of you have said... One person. A lot of you have written in to tell us just how much you appreciated the politics episode. And so in lieu... In lieu... <laughs> in, in lieu... In lieu of our last episode... Do you think that maybe the politics episode was our most famous one because it was the first one? There's no correlation other than that. I'm talking about specific feedback that okay. I have gotten from my peers. Peer. In peers. <laughs> anyway, so in lieu of our last episode, we thought that it would be a good uh, educational segue to talk about the AIDS crisis. Now, this is a topic that I've studied upon quite a bit previously through media Um and entertainment, and so so I thought this is a good time in our podcast to yeah. finally bring I it mean, up. I learned a lot about it today, like just based on our today. research session today. So I'm obviously very qualified to give info. No, I'm kidding. I know more about the medical aspects of um, the progression of HIV to AIDS. As any liberal artist student <laughs> would. You know. A med, st- a future med student, but um, so that's where most of my knowledge comes from. Um, but we wanted to look at more of the the social aspects of it, psychological aspects of it, socioeconomic aspects of it, if you may. I do may. <laughs> I do may. Yeah. So we thought let's go ahead and jump right into it. So, I'm sure a lot of you have actually heard about the AIDS epidemic uh, that has started in America in the Mm. 80s. Where would you say, like, the timeline for the AIDS epidemic kind of, like, how long was it, do you think? I mean, obviously, AIDS is still, um, like, a sexually transmitted disease that's still prevalent now well but. the much like you know the coronavirus it, it's it's about waves and how it comes mm-hmm. and goes but the rise of it was specifically in new york city and san francisco between 1981 and 1984 mm-hmm. so that's when most people got affected and we have a lot of literature and um media that's come out about a lot of art based around that um <laughs> epidemic yeah so around the time yeah (laughs) (laughs) just gonna edit this part out 
so like I, like I just mentioned, the epidemic started out primarily in San Francisco and New York City, um, and both of which have particular significance in terms of the history of gay rights activism included. And this is Im- important to note because the AIDS epidemic originally began to spread amongst the gay community mm. and so has gotten this uh, claim around it that it's a gay disease, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. uh, which is entirely incorrect and has proven to be scientifically incorrect yeah. since. And it mostly stemmed from just the severe lack of sexual education on a whole, but also sexual education and same-sex relationships. Yeah. But according to Avert in at the time, the first recognized cases of AIDS occurred in the USA in the early 1980s. A number two of gay men in New York and California suddenly began to develop rare opportunistic infections and cancers. Hmm. Um, and using a historical lens to showcase how marginalized populations have been affected, um, we're going to set out how how this basically has affected people at the time. So I think why I think it's important to look at it from the pers- uh, perspective of the marginalized communities more so than the wealthier communities mm-hmm. is for many reasons. First of all, because originally it began to spread amongst the gay community, which at the time members of which were ostracized by their families. And couldn't afford treatment. Couldn't afford treatment. But more than that, uh, sex education, um, gay sex education, was not prevalent. And so any form of condoms to use as gay couples was not encouraged or spoken about. Yeah. So a lot of people would have unprotected sex. And they didn't use protection because they couldn't. Because they couldn't get pregnant, pregnant, so they they thought they weren't taught that the importance of it, that it also prevented sexually transmitted diseases. And so as a result, it spread like rapid fire and was unable to be treated because a lot of those people didn't have the money to get treated. And even in the 80s, sex was a taboo subject to talk about, more so gay sex. Yeah. Um, So Whereas a lot of rich people have had money to pay off to pay for the uh, rising medication at the time called AZT, um, which was still an experimental drug, but was still affordable and provided some results, though not all, to patients. So it it wasn't, though it was a hard time for everyone, it was a much harder time, as always, for the marginalized communities. For sure. Um, A really important figure to highlight in, at the time, is Larry Kramer. So Larry Kramer recently died. He has written since. Uh, is he an author? He, well, he's become an author. He's an mm-hmm. author of the book called The Normal Heart. It's a play, adapted stage play, and he. But at the time, he was just a gay man, a gay man who was not um, comfortable with the situation he was living in, and. Not willing to back down. And people were made to feel uncomfortable about their identity during this time. More so if you had caught, you know, AIDS um, and and it had progressed to that stage, you were just ostracized. 
And he was of the mindset that you cannot get anywhere with a peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. So in, in his quote, he said, if you write a calm letter and fax it to nobody, it sinks like a brick in the Hudson. Mm -hmm. So he really emphasized that you, as a person who uh, isn't heard and people do not want to hear you, you need to find a way to make them hear you. And that's what he's basically dedicated his life to. Uh, so as a result, the published version of The Normal Heart became an autobiographical play by him, uh, revolving around the HIV and AIDS crisis in New York, in New York City between 89 and 84. And so he, it outlines his, uh, importance in the rise of activism at the time. Mm -hmm. First of all, he was the, uh, he set up the Gay Men's Health Crisis Organization, um, entailing raucous antagonistic campaigns. Him and his uh, friends majorly helped shift national health policy with it in the 80s and 90s, and it was the first service organization founded for HIV-positive people. Mm -hmm. Previously, if they thought you had HIV, they would not admit you to hospital because they'd think you would contaminate every everyone else in that uh, facility. They just weren't educated on the spread of this virus. Well, much like, you know, we see these... Um, parallels with different pandemics but with coronavirus there's often facilities built specifically for patients with coronavirus mm -hmm. which would have been great for hiv patients if anyone gave a shit about the hiv patients but no one did mm -hmm. um because and even now it's still quite stigmatized if you have hiv or you have aids there's more resources and there's more centers that are open um at the time, there was nothing. For At the example, time, there were during Pride, you can get tested for any sexually transmitted disease. At, at that time, you know the the social climate was so conservative mm -hmm. that people thought you're gay, you deserve to die. So why should you get treated? I mean, with Reagan president at that time and him being a conservative, conservative views were prevalent. That's uh, basically what happened because um, it was founded on this organization he founded in the 80s called the Major the Moral Majority, which was founded with... Ronald Reagan. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it was formed with the purpose of, like, advancing conservative and basically largely religious, largely Christian social values. And this helped establish the religious right as a force in American politics. And to this day... There's this an expansion of this idea of the conscious rule, quote unquote. It's like, which basically means medical professionals should be allowed to chew, pick and choose whoever they want to treat, depending so on. So they can refuse people certain medical services like abortion, or um, or euthanasia, or even as basic treatments like, again, drawing lines back to coronavirus, trans people in many facilities across the USA cannot get treated for coronavirus because they're trans. God damn. It has nothing to do with them being trans. It's not a gender reassignment surgery of any sort. It's just because they're trans. Being a doctor... They're not allowed to get treated. You should not let your personal... Oh, no, you swear, you swear on yeah. this oath that you do not discriminate. And yet, politics enforces the right that you should be able to. And... Just to give you a view on how fucked up. Yeah, and Eddie. so the moment 
in history that Reagan became an ally of this organization, the lives of American LGBT community became more uncertain than they already were and remain to this day. The Basically, the active years of the moral majority coincided with the outbreak of AIDS, which is important because it meant that the virus spread silently. ostracized them even further. Yeah, it meant that it spread silently, and uh, by the end of 1981, there was already nine, 270 reported cases. 121 of them has already died. Wow. And this is the, po- the point in which no one's doing anything yet mm-hmm. at all. The medical crisis was overlooked by the government until 1986. That's five years later. Five years away, too freaking late. Um, after already 11,000 people have died. And that's in America. We're talking just in America. And that's died, not infected. Do they not find, do they not find that extremely concerning? No, because they, they thought they deserved to die, and that's why people like Larry Kramer... Um, not a medical professional, just a random, well, not a random guy, but just a guy, you know, a working guy, had to establish a medical center. Reagan's um, moral majority said that these people's lives didn't matter and that if they got this disease, they deserved it and they should die because it didn't align with his socio-political values, his conservative values on how, you know, society should be and the pe- types of people that deserve to live in, in this American society and gay people and trans people were not a part of that just yeah. because this disease was a majority amongst them and, and there th- are hetero people that do have and that can get HIV and AIDS just as easily but the, it's just less. It's the attitude towards the whole thing that was the problem because I think Think of it, uh, when you uh, have a leader, like a president, you, you're meant to look up to them. You're meant to look up to their views or what, what they entail, you know. Uh, the, his, Ronald Reagan's attitude was epitomized in, like, in the infamous response of his secretary uh, to a reporter's question uh, about reasons for inaction towards mm-hmm. the AIDS crisis. And he said, well, I don't have AIDS, do you? So freaking. There's no morality in that statement. There's no sensitivity or. It's emotion towards this I'm, entire group of people. I'm sorry, but I don't know how to teach people like that. You have to have empathy. Basic y- you empathy. don't just care about people that are like you because, frankly, if we dig very dig dig very much down, no one's like you. You're the only one like you. Someone said that on behalf of Reagan only showed that he really only cared about people who were affected in his class and his wealth system of his race, of his sexuality. If if I may comment, white men dominated those sectors of society already. So no wonder presumably straight men. Yeah. What what? um, If I may comment on you know, how to govern a country or whatnot. All he had to do was establish government-funded hospitals specifically dedicated to HIV patients and immediately fund medical research. But instead, he resorted to waiting for five years until the what, problem until has, they could prove that, that straight that people could get it. Life that, that straight people could get it. No. Oh, okay. No, so they never proved that they, people yeah, people were never, were never worthy of life. 
And, you know, it's... He's... He, it's just that attitude is repulsive because people in that in that five years the the queer community didn't stay silent you know they're, they're, though I have used the word silently it's it, it wasn't it was very they much not silent. like that there was so much literature and film and art that came out of that peak in the AIDS epidemic that were saying please listen to us please listen to our voice because we need to be heard we need to be treated now. As I mentioned before, with regards to, you know, the, the Gay Men's Health Crisis Organization, actually, Larry Kramer have been kicked out of that organization because he was too aggressive in his approach. Which, but the non-aggressive approach got them nowhere. And, you know, we people were tired of just subsiding to the uh, heteronormative society. And so what he did mm. is he founded ACT UP which was one of the most prominent militant activist groups in American AIDS history. And they committed to street actions, demanding a speed-up of the AIDS research, drug research, and an end to discrimination against gay men and lesbians. And it's really important to point out that he, he did start wanting to have a silent protest, wanting to approach the situation peacefully. And when that doesn't work, what do you do? You have to... That's arguable, to be honest. I don't think he ever had it. Well, from his records of what he said, he never wanted a peaceful approach. He just wanted action, and but, and but there was no fair. there was no room for peaceful approach. We people have been peaceful up until the eighties. Like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, in a way, it's just inevitable that action is going to take place like that, and especially if any peaceful action gets rebuttaled with uh, aggressive I mean, police action and protests on the in general, government side. still relevant until now with the Black Lives Matter movement and any other movements happening right now. And it, all of this isn't to say, you know, that he was unafraid. Like, he wasn't some hero. He wasn't specially trained for any of this. But he said these words that are, is one of my favorite quotes. He said, I'm just someone who desperately wants to stay alive. And that's a voice of someone who... Is that there? Is that a bottom? Has run out of options. There, there was no other way for him. And honestly, like ACT UP has done so many great things. They've led the largest protest to the time against AIDS-related discrimination, declaring a day of desperation. Protesters led mass marches and delivered coffins to city, state, and federal offices that the group held responsible for perpetuating the AIDS epidemic. People were marching the streets with coffins to make a point. And it's still, like, mm -hmm. they, they, it literally still took them five years to listen. This, this, but uh, bear in but mind, this at a, the time, this is 1991 we're talking about. But it did get, didn't it get to a point where they would just not bury the patients anymore? Well, that's, yeah, but that's, that's what I'm saying. This is 1991. This, mm -hmm. pro, this mass protest is 1991. Started in 81. This is 10 years later. This is, imagine us... In 10 years, still living through coronavirus. And no one's doing anything about it. Except That's minus it. all the medical research. That was their reality. Yeah. Continue to be the reality even further than that. And the disrespect uh, followed through, just like you said, towards burial. It wasn't just medical treatment. Um, like, there's an island called the Potter's Field in, in next to New York City, which is used to bury indigenous people, because no, no respect for indigenous people. Um... And also homeless and poor people. And because their bodies aren't claimed to strangers and, like, you can't really make a mural out of it. Mm -hmm. 
they would, so, they would bury, um, basically any, any patient that has died of AIDS, because they would think that it's, they could affect, but some, uh, infect from the grave, like, people who come to the... People who are dead? Yeah, no, (laughs) people who come to the funeral to visit their departed. Um... Like, there was... That they just scientifically doesn't make sense. Yeah, but they just said, shut up. Like, we don't know what this thing is. They don't deserve humanity. Yeah, sorry, what humanity? No, you're not human to begin with. And the type of... The literature and the art that did come out of this only became recognized years later. Like, a lot of people's favorite plays, Rent, dealt with the AIDS epidemic, and they had a character... They had several characters who were suffering from... HIV, and one of them had progressed into AIDS, which was the Dry Queen Angel. Um, and if you wa- are haven't watched Rent, then I'm going to spoil it. It's a spoiler alert. Um, Angel is the character that dies in Rent, um, and she dies of AIDS. And um, one of the quotes from the song Will I sets out like three questions, which was, Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? And will I wake up from this nightmare? And this was something that the people at the time who were suffering from AIDS, these are like three questions that really did specifically pick out the terrors that came with this infection. And the really real notion that they would be they would have nothing left. They would not. They could not fit in society. There was no place for them in society anymore. So they lost their dignity, and they lost care from other people, and they never knew, you know, how long they would live. They didn't have any treatment. Yeah. There's a lot of fears of, you know, dying alone, being abandoned, being oppressed. And this is, like, a heavy topic for someone who many of them especially trans women, especially trans women of color, Mm. were already abandoned by their families. It's being abandoned by everyone and dying on your own. And not even... And that was sadly the reality of it. Or dying because all of your chosen family has already died. You know, like, people have... Because their chosen family would likely be people also from the gay community or... Oh no! For no, def, definitely yeah. from the gay community because they all they all lived in big families, and the the reality for them was is every year you would go to a hundred some funerals, yeah, and of then, your friends, of the people you remember, yeah, like on the dance floor, out in the streets. Rent was about it was about these friends that all lived in this apartment building that was being, um, that was run down, and they had nowhere else to live. They it was set during like winter in New York. The conditions were really dire, you know. They had no heat, no food. They were already suffering from HIV and had progressed to the stage of AIDS. By the way, if you don't treat HIV, it will progress into AIDS. AIDS is the final stage. Yeah, stage four. And they had nowhere else to go. So you are already living knowing that the probable outcome of this situation is death. And and sometimes in that situation, dying alone. Which is really dark, but it was the reality of it. And so this time wasn't just something that you could easily ignore. Or something that you could just be like, it will go away in a few years. It's something that keeps going, you know? Yeah. 
And let me see. Yeah. Similarly, there's um, the play that I've kind of found. Well, not found the I, like the research into AIDS epidemic, but really focused in on it was when I read Angels in America, and it's it was quite a controversial piece of literature at the time. It basically, as a play, it follows characters um, that surrounding the AIDS epidemic. Uh, one of them, a uh, prior, one of the main characters has AIDS. And at the time it was published, it was a very necessary piece of theater for sure, but it was incredibly controversial. Uh, for example, in 1996, it in North Carolina, production of Angels took place only under the protection of a court order because local officials actually threatened to prosecute actors for violating indecent exposure laws because of showing, like, what, how, how it was, basically showing the truth, you know, the unfiltered truth. And productions in other city- cities were picketed. Uh, and this response really speaks to the kind of content, like, you'll come across reading this play. It's really unfiltered. It really shows you the very raw image of what was going on mm-hmm. um, with the language and the imagery. In the con- in the play, one of the interesting storylines is this uh, man, Roy Kahn, is diagnosed as having AIDS. Now, he's a representation of a real-life politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets diagnosed with the tapes. Someone of high stature. I oh, yeah, finished. like, someone who has went on to represent Donald Trump in real time. Wow. Um, yeah, so he um, he gets diagnosed at the same time as Pryor. Pryor's a character that isn't wealthy, Roy Khan is. And he goes into this whole monologue about saying, you know, oh, no, I don't have AIDS. You have AIDS. I have liver cancer. Uh, and by that, he means that he it's can pay off... Denying. He can No, he can pay off the fact... That his yeah. nurse will write liver cancer instead, so he won't lose his status in the eyes of his co-workers. He can pay not to be gay. Yeah, he can pay not to be gay. And in a way, it's like... It's a really strange... Oh, my bad. Actually, he didn't represent Donald Trump, but his, his like, attorney did. Or his, like, lower... His chef mm-hmm. or what, whatnot. But anyway, it, basically, he was, he was, I think he was Ronald Reagan's, like, right man, right hand man lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in, throughout this series, it's, it, it showcases the parallels between constructions of AIDS victimhood and constructions of the poor and the marginalized. So, like, medical and psychiatric discourse, mm-hmm. ma- um, mainly. Uh, it, it follows it from the perspective of the medical workers. The medical workers that were gay. Yeah. And the patients. And the patients, like, family surroundings. And And people in upper class systems. And it's important to make connections between the construction of it because there's... It's a triple three curse, so to speak. It's... There's objectification because you're not treated as a human being. There's institutionalized powerlessness because no one's doing anything. You can't do anything. You can't make do them do anything for you. Like solely based on how much money you make. And then the blame for your condition. That mm. you are at fault for being this way. Mm. And 
so suck it up because you're like well you shouldn't have been gay if you didn't want to die of AIDS sorry yeah or you should have kept that under wraps you should have been secretive about it and it's it's uh disturbing the storyline that is or i should say not the storyline in and of itself but the a point of view for of the of the institution to it Mm -hmm. that you develop such uh uh empathy for these main characters as you do with plays but you're not, you know, as a, as a, as a reader, you're, you also feel powerless because you can't, you can't help them. You can't help them. And you know, you know, there's no way they will be helped. And you hold on to that hope until the very end of the play. I mean, what's disturbing about that is that that could, that plot line, the dis, the disturbance of it all could so easily be turned into a horror film with the lack of empathy for anything and the lack of empathy of villain characters or monsters that are often portrayed in horror films but those monsters are just based off of already established systemic characterizations of actual people of actual political figures and values and ideas that work to oppress groups of people continuously people who are of lower are lower in the class and that's honestly the most disturbing part of it and that this institution that's already been pre-established time and time again takes eons and ages to break down because it's been here for ages and think of it this this way these characters are in their like early 20s uh in early 20s to late 20s and so many of them have these internal monologues built in about you know knowing they won't live Mm-hmm. giving up on life not feeling like there's any point to life or to continue anymore and that is disturbing at such a young age because this is this is not you know we're talking about people who we're want... not talking about the 12th century we're talking about the 80s this is not this is recent yeah we're talking about people who had years of life beyond them who people had, had careers career aspirations, relationships you know who haven't experienced love yet who haven't yet to you know, find a family. And there's already the discussion of, you know, relationships being broken on the basis of, well, you are, you have AIDS, like, this is something I'm going to have to carry on for the rest of my life. And you can't argue with that character either because you're like, well, what would I have done in my early 20s? I don't fucking know. And you have, you sympathize with those characters because it's a tough, it's a tough situation to find yourself in between... Your, the potential of your future and the short potential of someone else that you love. It's somebody. It's something nobody prepares you to. And yeah, sure, you can say life stuff, suck it up. But the the probability of that same thing happening, uh, like to the straight community, is just so much more or less unlikely. The, like with the with specifically the viewpoint being on the straight community and not yeah. the gay community is unlikely because. That's exactly when the treatment started coming in, is when more straight people started getting, getting the disease. And they were like, oh, maybe we should... And they were like, oh, wait, no, we must find the cure! Because now people Look are at this, there's infected. a pandemic going on! Where have all you been? It's... Literally dying, that's where we've been. Sorry if you didn't notice. The, the problem with the view of life's tough in this situation was that life was only tough if you were gay. If you were straight and had 
HIV, there's a large probability that you would get medical treatment. Yes, treatment says like a lot, and and trans women, you know, think of it, uh, gay men, uh, even if you were lucky enough to get treated, a lot of trans women were not recognized for being women, and so they were then further objectified in the medical institutions yeah. as not their gender, and like you know, just shamed and when you're already in this condition of being between in the state of life and death mm-hmm. and you're just further like they're just rubbing everything in to yeah. you. Like it's you're just humiliating. It's humiliating yeah. and it's objectifying. Gay men and trans women are the most affected groups of this systemic oppression of having AIDS. Yeah. And in the... And thus at the highest risk of dying. Yeah. I think all of you should go and watch... First of all, all of you should go and watch Paris is Burning because Paris is Burning is a real... is a real kicker when it comes to the storyline and especially with the focus on trans women. But more... Uh, recently, um, the series of Pose, where it follows trans and gay characters in New York mm-hmm. through the AIDS epidemic also. Some of them involved, you know, within the ACT UP movement. Yeah. Um, some of them have HIV. Some of them deal with the heavy themes of relationships with that, within that HIV. And I just really encourage all of you to watch it, regardless of whether, you you know, you are or You're not the in the community. part of the community. I think any, everyone should educate themselves on this because it's part of our history. It's part of all of our it's history. Part of being of it's part of being. It's part of being yeah, of society. It's part of all of our history because you know, it, it's affected you in one way or another, just the same way as like Christopher Columbus has affected us in one yeah. way or another. But he didn't directly affect I me. Mean, I'm not a straight white man i'm russian (laughs) i mean (laughs) i identify as russian (laughs) it's just just because you're not part of the gay community or you don't even you might not even know somebody who's part of the gay community we learn straight history doesn't mean that it doesn't it still affects affects you you or you're not part of the problem in fact you are part of the problem because all of us are part of the problem all of us don't speak up enough enough because it's it's just so you know and there's but, there's a million of reasons for why that is but but we all need to take responsibility yeah. for it and at least educate yourself that's take, the least thing you can do is sit steps. back sit back and watch a tv show that's the least yeah. you can do so pose write that down watch it angels in america if you like plays if you like musicals there's rent if you like hollywood there's dallas buyers club if you like tom hanks there's philadelphia um, if you like music, then listen to Queen. Yeah, because the read some Freddie There Murphy are people all around you who are connected to this, and I know that we don't speak up enough for it as a community and as a society. But the first step is always education, because education is and always will be the most powerful tool to breaking down something has been a problem for ages and the easiest thing to do is you can educate yourself and then after education you might start to think about what are the ways i can contribute to this issue what am i passionate about with this issue what 
do I want to talk about? And you can build so many links of things and why things are important. For example, at the time when gay marriage was first in the discussions of, like, uh, on the legal basis, I remember having those conversations, and I didn't necessarily have the answer of why it's important. Well, after studying about the AIDS crisis, it's become blatantly obvious. During the crisis... So many of members of the gay community were ostracized by their families, which still happens, by the way, especially in the POC and the bi-POC community mm-hmm. and, and the trans community so prevalently. They had, all they had was like their chosen family and partners in some cases. But even if you have a partner, there was no way to have it legally recognized. So a lot of those HIV, so a lot of those HIV patients dying of AIDS on life support were unhooked from life support because their peers didn't give a sh- flying shit about them and their partners had no say in it because they're not legally recognized. And in that moment, in that moment, you realize that you have a lesser chance to live mm-hmm. than a straight person, than a straight married person would because they're, the key word is they're married and you're and not. They're straight. And if you don't like equalize marriage, it will never bring up to the same status yeah. and it will never mean the same thing. This is why the legalization of gay marriage was such a big step. It wasn't just, oh, we also want to get married. We also want to, like, have a wedding. It was, oh, it's we also want the rights that it. come with having marriage. It come with being married. They come with having a partner. I want with, for example, ha- you wanting your partner to have a say in how what happens with your life if your life ever happens to be in their hands. So critically, And but- a lot of the times, the people in the gay community can just not put their the stake of their life in the hands of their family because those aren't that those people aren't their actual family they have left and they've ostracized them and they had to go find a chosen family and those people are part of the gay community but they will never be legally recognized for that matter and similarly you know on a lesser scale even you say you're working for a company you've been moved to enough another country you're given a working visa if you're if you do not have a recognized legal marriage, mm-hmm. you cannot move with your partner. Oh, wow. Because yeah. you don't get that visa. You don't get the partner's visa. Like, I know even in Hong Kong, though gay marriage isn't recognized here, if you, like, say the couple came from Australia and you got married in Australia, you can move on the working visa. Like, they still recognize the marriage certificate. Mm-hmm. So... It's it's extremely important that those things are getting more and more prevalent because, like, it's it's all about just having access to the same opportunities as as a, as the straight uh, people, the straight people, the straight people. The- Maybe some things to talk about is just basic education about what HIV and AIDS is. So, to begin, um, Doctor Chan in the house. Oh God, that was such a cringy <laughs> Dr. thing to Chan say. In the house. Insert rap here. Um, yeah, so editing, Sophia. Insert rap here. Okay. So, HIV and AIDS are not the same thing. However, the early form of AIDS is presented as HIV, which I hope most of you know. And HIV occurs in four stages. Those stages being stage one, which is infection, which is... Um, when the HIV replicates in the body after infection, and sometimes flu-like symptoms might occur, like a headache or a fever, sometimes a rash or a sore throat. And this is when the immune system is reacts to the virus by developing antibodies. 
But the problem with HIV is that it's an autoimmune disease. HIV and AIDS are an autoimmune disease, which means that there's lower antibodies, which means you are more susceptible to virus and disease. Stage two is asymptomatic, which means that there's not many outward signs or symptoms. Stage three is symptomatic is when it starts to act up. It starts to become quite clear. There's weight loss. There's mouth ulcers diarrhea. Basically, if it reaches to stage three, you'll know you have it. You will definitely know. And you will be tested. And And that's a hard stage of recovery at stage three. And then in stage four, that's when it progresses into what is known as AIDS. And, okay. So there's that information there. And you can go look up the symptoms of it, but try not to, like, worry yourself. So, Sophia, what do you do if you have been in a sexual interaction and your partner informs you the next day, alas, I have AIDS? <laughs> and I did not tell you. Which is a very odd situation to find yourself in, but not But unlike... surprisingly not uncommon. Yes. Um, first of all, I would probably cut off communication with that person. No, I'm kidding. Well, not really. (laughs) I would be very mad. So step one, get mad at that person. Step two, immediately drive yourself to the hospital and ask for PrEP. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and this is just a medicine that helps prevent HIV. But you have to take it in a 72-hour window after sexual intercourse. You can also access it if you're in America in any Planned Parenthood facility. Mm Or if you are have a, like you kind of pay kind of a bit for a university, then they probably Might have it at, have the, it sex at the sex health center. Yeah. So a lot of uh, universities in the U.S. have started um, opening sexual health centers, which is very nice. If you're in Hong Kong, there's one in Central. <laughs> I did not know that. I told you oh. it was like a big thing. It opened this year, I think, or Yay. last year. And it was like a big opening. It's the first clinic here to provide prep, I think, That's for free. Insane. I know. But okay. This has been long in the waiting. Um and if prep the studies have shown that prep reduces the risk of HIV by about ninety nine percent if taken daily. And among the people who inject drugs, prep reduces the risk of getting HIV by at least seventy four percent. Also, you don't just get HIV and AIDS from sex, you can also get it from sharing needles. Yeah, so don't share needles. Don't share needles. Or don't do it in the first place. Don't share needles. Okay. Also, very important announcement. Just because you take PrEP doesn't mean you're immune from every single, uh, like, disease you can get or UTI or whatever. No, but a lot of gay men seems to think that that's the case. So very important announcement. Also use a condom. Basically, the point of this episode is that we just want to make an, we just want to have a platform where you can be open about um, conversations revolving around subjects that people find are typically taboo. Are typically taboo. Sex conversations are extremely important just to solely educate people. Let's not beat around the bush. It's something, it's a part of life. Now, on a very exciting note, um, actually, very recently, this year, a 34-year-old man who was diagnosed with HIV back in 2012 may have been the first person to maintain long-term HIV remission after only being given a course of intensive anti-retroviral drugs, which, mean, which makes him the first person to be treated simply using drugs and no bone marrow transplants. 
So we're it's great. You know, Yay. we're getting there but medical you, technology. But to get there you also need to protect yourself and take care of yourself. Yes. And you I don't want to get to that place. Enough. Honor your history. Yes. Don't be ashamed of it. It's a part of who you are. But yeah, so I know this is a We're already assuming all of them have (laughs) (laughs) To the sixteen of you listening, (laughs) stay responsible. I know this is a more intense episode and it's a bit more Get used to it. It's a bit more dark, but it's important and we wanted to create lighthearted. We wanted to create an open platform, so stay safe out there and keep educated. That's the podcast. Dash, is that your second glass of wine? And?